Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Do you like sports? Cause we like sports. Let's talk about sports. It's Sports Shack. Sports Shack. It's Sports Shack. Sports Shack presents Irish Tales with Chuck Freebie and Bob Nagel. Stories from the land of the fighting Irish on the Studio DNA Podcast Network. Hi everybody, Chuck Freebie alongside the Tailmaster himself, Bob Nagel. Welcome to another edition of Irish Tales. Tis the season when the ball goes through the net. Basketball at Notre Dame has a long and glorious history. You've been around for a good 55 <laughs> years of it or so. What kinds of memories do you have about Notre Dame basketball? Well, first a little history, Chuck. You know, it's a good thing that Notre Dame was located so close to Michigan. Because if you needed fruit baskets, where else would you go but Michigan? You're talking about peach baskets, to be precise. Yeah, of course we had some of those. But, you know, this program goes back before the turn of the century, back to the 1890s. And uh, I was kind of surprised at that. But uh, Frank Herring, who was a football coach at Notre Dame, Mm -hmm. uh, was actually our first basketball coach back in, uh, you remember, 1898. I don't, but I'm sure you do. (laughs) Yeah, early on they only played a couple, two, three games a year, but uh, it got going pretty well, uh, obviously, later on. But one of the things that's kind of unique about Notre Dame is when you look back at the last 50 50 years, Mm -hmm. we've had four coaches. Right. And that's uh, a little bit different in this world that we live in today. But, uh, you know, you go back and look at Mike Bray, it's hard to believe that, you know, how long he's been here already and uh, the success that he's had and uh, the fact that he's Probably, you know, there's talk early on about him going somewhere else or maybe being the new coach at Duke. But I think Mike's going to be here till he retires, and I think he's done a great job. You know, I talked with Mike Saturday on the pregame show that I do for WNDU. And before the interview started, because I've been meaning to ask him this, I said, how old were you when you took the job at Notre Dame? And he said, 41. I said, okay. And how long had you been a head coach at Delaware? before you became the head coach in her name. He said, five years. I said, how much benefit were those five years at Delaware when you took the job basically at the same age as Marcus Freeman? How much of a benefit? He goes, immense. He goes, I wasn't, my mistakes being made as a head coach were in front of about 700 people (laughs) with no cameras around. Yeah, His are being made in front of 80,000 people with cameras everywhere. And he said the ability to learn on the job in that kind of atmosphere was terrific for me. And if, if you look at the history of Notre Dame basketball, Digger, even though he didn't have a ton of college experience before he came here, what, one year 
at Fordham. At Fordham, yeah. Still had a chance to to learn on the job a little bit. And to be honest, the expectations were so low when he took the job at Notre Dame because everybody knew that Johnny D's last class huh. was just so loaded. Um, so he had the chance to to learn and get his feet wet a little bit. I found it very interesting that Mike Bray had an appreciation for what Marcus Freeman is going through right now. It's a neat perspective that's, uh, you know, the, the five years were invaluable for him. You think about uh, Martin Inglesby being in Delaware. He's been there probably, what, five, six years. Yeah. I think a lot of people are looking at him as maybe a possible head coach somewhere else. So uh, wish him well, but it's a, it's a neat perspective. And when you think about some of the things that have happened in the history of Notre Dame basketball as far as coaching goes, uh, I remember Moose Krause used to be adamant about the fact that George Keegan was the best coach we ever had. There's no question about it. That's what Moose used to say, so he didn't question him. But um, George Keegan died in office. He was our head coach when he passed away. Yeah. And some guy named Moose Krause took over the program. And Moose was there for seven, eight years. And uh, he uh, took over the program and ran it during the war years. And uh, then after the war years, he ran it till 1951. And um, Moose had a pretty good, uh, pretty good success record. You know, you you look at what uh, a guy like Moose Krause put together. He was there uh, for seven years. They played 146 games and they won 98, 98 and 48 in that time. Everybody thinks of Moose as a football player, and obviously that's where he got the nickname, the size that he had. He was a tremendous basketball player in their name. I believe he was on an All-American team at Notre Dame. And my favorite Moose Krause basketball story dates back to his time as a player. At that time, uh, Notre Dame frequently would play in-state teams, and they had gone down to Indianapolis Mm -hmm. to play Butler. And Moose had gotten a rebound while he was flat on his back, hoisted the shot, and it went through for the game winner (laughs) to beat the Bulldogs. So the next morning, the at that time, Indianapolis had two newspapers. You had the Indianapolis Star, which was sold in the morning, and the Indianapolis News that was sold in the afternoon. Outside the hotel, there's a young paper boy trying to hawk newspapers. And as Moose walks by, he hears Morning Star, to which he replies, Morning Sun, and gets on the bus. Oh, that's good. That is good. I, uh, I was, you know, you talk about uh, uh, stories that you remember when Johnny Jordan was our head coach. He had coached over at Fenwick over in Chicago mm-hmm. and uh, brought a kid with him that uh, later wound up being our director of uh, uh, protocol in uh, Jim. Uh, Jim Gibbons. Jim Gibbons. And Jim Gibbons was doing a – we were doing an interview about the UCLA series because he played in the first game that Notre Dame ever played against UCLA. And uh, he had played at Fenwick, so Johnny Jordan was his high school coach, and also at Notre Dame. So uh, they were playing UCLA, and it was a big game. It had gotten pretty close toward the end of the game. And uh, Jimmy was trying to inbound the ball, and nobody was there. So he finally inbounded himself and started dribbling up the floor. And he got about to half court, and the official blew the whistle. Said, you can't do that. He said, I know. And then he turned to go toward the bench. He goes, where are you going? He said, Coach is going to take me out, <laughs> and he did. He knew uh, he knew Johnny wasn't real happy with that, but uh, they ended up beating UCLA in that first game. 
And, of course, one of the stars during that era for Johnny Jordan was a guy by the name of Tom Hawkins, who was really the first black athlete of any notoriety at Notre Dame. A terrific basketball player who went on for years to call Notre Dame basketball games as a color analyst and then had a director of community relations position with the Los Angeles Dodgers for a long period of time. And that was a guy who just absolutely bled blue and gold. He really did. And his son Kevin played for for Notre Dame as well. And Kevin's still here in town and involved in some things at Notre Dame, which is great. He's a tremendous young man. But uh, when you, the stories that I remember my dad telling me about Tommy Hawkins is that obviously when they were traveling uh, many times, he couldn't stay in the same hotel as the rest of the team. Yeah. And there were a number of times when the team said, well, the, the heck with you, we're going to go stay with Tommy. And they did. They left the big hotels and whatever and went and stayed where Tommy was. And there was great unity there and leadership. And imagine the pressure that a guy is under – uh, representing Notre Dame and trying to, you know, hold your head high and, and all that, and then you're being treated like a second-class citizen by many of the programs in many of the areas of the country and uh, never heard a word. You know, he was the Jackie Robinson of Notre Dame basketball. And then you go on up through the years. One of the more perplexing coaches for me, and and you were around at the tail end of his era, was the aforementioned Johnny D. And, of course, Johnny D put together, in my mind, and maybe it's because when we're kids we we hold these players in greater esteem and, right. and idolize, but he put together one of the greatest Notre Dame basketball teams there ever was with um, Jackie Meehan, Sid Catlett, Collis Jones, and, oh, by the way, a guy by the name of Austin Carr – who, despite the lack of a three-point shot when he played, still holds the Notre Dame scoring records. Obviously, a different era of basketball. If you go back and look at basketball scores at the time that Austin Carr played, it was very common for colleges to score in the 100s, even though there was no shot clock. And Austin Carr is still the most magnificent basketball player I've ever seen wear a Notre Dame uniform. I would agree with you, Chuck. He did so many things well. He got into pros and uh, had some knee injuries, and it really curtailed his uh, career in the pros. With uh, he was with uh, Cleveland, Cleveland, yeah, and 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 continued to work for. Uh, Still uh, known as Mister Cavalier. That's right. But but what do you remember about Johnny D? Because you were a little bit older than I was during that era. I actually had a chance to meet John D. back in my hometown, Ottawa, Illinois. He was good friends with a car dealer down there who supplied him with the vehicle. And so he was there for an an occasion. And a real down-to-earth kind of guy. And uh, he was uh, in that era when basketball, you know, it hadn't really taken off yet. Uh, And Digger had a lot to do with that, getting those big games with UCLA, Marquette, and so on. But we did have some big games, and we did go to Kentucky. And uh, one of the things I remember about uh, being down in Kentucky one time is the guys were warming up, and the basketball said, Adolph, we're up on the ball. So they brought it over to coach and said, do we have to play with this? And he went over and the official says, we're not going to play with this ball. And they brought Rupp over for the discussion. And they said, we've got a problem. Your name is on the game ball. He goes, yeah. Well, they're not going to play with you. He said, then get on the bus and get out of here. So we played with the Adolph Rupp ball uh, in that era. But uh, the thing about Johnny D was, as you said, it was almost, uh, he didn't, you know, his guys didn't break the color barrier, but 
to have three black athletes starting at that time at that time was really tough and there was uh, <clears throat> again uh, they were very successful and they did play like that moose cross type of schedule they used to put a circle on the, the map and that's who we can play mm-hmm. and so we played depaul and we played loyola and we played a lot of those type of teams but uh, they did establish themselves as one of the best and of course austin Carr still holds the record for points in an ncaa game was 61 i don't care what if three-point line what era whatever I mean, if it's the most by 10 points anybody's ever scored, it's got my respect. Well, and if you go back and, and watch the video of that game, and I think it's on YouTube, but I believe it's the late, great Kirk Gowdy on the call. If you take a look at where his shots are and just oh. kind of draw an imaginary three-point line in your head, he's he would be somewhere between 68 to 70 points under today's rules Right. with, with the shots that he took. Oh, it was... It was just amazing. He was always from the same spot, too. And Jackie Meehan would wait for a car to come off a screen from Sid Catlett, pop out there on the right side, give him the ball, boom. And uh, I could never figure out why people didn't defend Jackie Meehan more because without him, sure. it would have been tough to get the ball uh, to Austin Carr. I I had the pleasure, and, and I'll never forget this. I'm five years old in 1971, and I, I'm blessed with a kindergarten teacher who, A, is a St. Mary's grad student, and B, understands that I have a tremendous liking and fascination with sports. So, so she picks me up on a uh, cold January day and takes me over to, at that time, the Athletic and Convocation Center. Yes. And we sit in the bleachers right below where the upper press box is. So if any of you have been in the building, you know exactly where I'm talking about. And we watched a game between Notre Dame and UCLA in which Austin Carr scored 47 points and the Irish beat the top-ranked Bruins 89-82. And what, of course, was significant about that game in 1971 is it was the last game UCLA under John Wooden would lose until January 19, 1974, when the Irish snapped their 88-game win streak. Wow. But I just remember watching Carr that day and just being mesmerized by his artistry with the basketball. The only player I can remember in the college ranks of that era, other than Austin Carr, was Pete Maravich. Right. And Pete Maravich had a style that is still inimitable. There has never been another Pete Maravich. There never will be. I'm not so sure we can't say the same thing about Austin Carr. Well, I, I totally agree, and I think the thing about Austin Carr that I remember most is how hard he worked away from the ball. When he didn't have the ball, he was in constant motion, and he was always he, – I could go off a screen from Catlett or Jones. I could uh, just pop out on the wing. He had so many ways of getting open and then getting the shot up real quick, and uh, he was a, a really hard-working athlete and a, just a tremendous gentleman and a great representative of Notre Dame. And, you know, Collis Jones had a real good career at Notre Dame. Yes. Mostly because people were going out and watching Austin. Right. And uh, and then Sid Catlett was big, uh, a big, strong, rebounding uh, forward who had a few points. But uh, remember we talked uh, about John Pleck. You know, he was on the football team. Oh, yeah. And they brought him in to play center on that team because he was 6'8". And we don't need you to score. we got plenty of scoring. We just need you to rebound and play defense. And So John Pleck did that on, on that team. And uh, well, you, know, you, look, you look at what Johnny Jordan did and uh, Johnny D 
and building that program in some years. When, again, basketball wasn't the game it is today. No. But they did a great job. And, you know, there's a neat story there about when uh, when Johnny D was uh, going to resign, uh, Gene Sullivan was uh, the assistant coach. And they always thought that maybe he'd be the next guy, and he really wanted to be the next guy, and he wasn't. And uh, so he uh, he had some other success uh, in his coaching career. But uh, there was also a, a story about uh, Moose Krause was recruiting for basketball. He met a kid at a hotel in Chicago, and the kid's name was Ray Meyer. Now, he'd been two years out of school, was working at a hotel and playing for the hotel basketball team, which was fairly common in those days. And so he got talking to him, and uh, Ray wound up at Notre Dame, was a two-time captain at Notre Dame. And a lot of people thought he might be a coach at Notre Dame someday, but he wound up at some other school over there in Chicago. I can't remember, DePaul maybe. And, and stayed there for <laughs> how many years? About 37 of them. Yeah. Yeah, and had a great run there. But uh, it's kind of neat when you you think about how those, you know, now you got recruiting going on, you get. NIL promises. It's. I mean, obviously, it's a whole different world. But here's a kid that was working at a hotel, and Moose Krause met him, and somebody says, "You know, he's a great basketball player." Oh, is he? So they brought him over, and he was, and did a great job here. Well, there was another youngster back in about 1965 that had sent a letter to the football coach in Dame, Eric Parsegan, and the envelope was addressed from Hazleton, Pennsylvania. Right. And the young man was the coach at St. Gabriel's in Hazleton, Pennsylvania, and said it was his dream someday to be the head coach at the University of Notre Dame. Little did he know that Era, A, would hang on to the letter, and B, just six years later, he'd be living out his dream, and that's Richard Digger Phelps. I know he has his detractors. I know people in town, you either love him or hate him. However... Nobody can argue the fact that he really not only helped Notre Dame basketball grow, but really helped the sport of college basketball grow, as you mentioned, Bob, getting these national games on with teams like UCLA and Kentucky and using what was available at the time, which was syndicated television and this network called TVS run by a guy named Eddie Einhorn, they revolutionized college basketball. You look at where college basketball was at the beginning of the 70s and where it ended up at the end of the 70s. Right. What a what an incredible period of growth. Yeah, and Digger was here for uh, 20 years Yes, and won 393 games and a lot of success. He, what I remember most is I guess he packed the, you know, they packed the Joyce Center. And one of the things about when Digger was coaching is people wanted to be seen at a Notre Dame basketball game. So back then, the floor allowed you to walk around in a circle, and it seemed like everybody would make sure they got down on the floor and walked around the circle so people could see that they'd been there. Yeah. And then for some years after that, uh, nobody wanted to take a walk for fear that someone would see them there. But uh, it was it was kind of neat. They used to have a, you know, they, they catered a dinner inside the monogram room uh, before every game, and it was sold out. They uh, just, I mean, it was a magnificent time. When you think about the team that went to the Final Four in 78, and I was fortunate to get a chance to be in St. Louis with that team, but they had uh, they had seven people on that team that played in the NBA. So uh, he had a nice pipeline coming from the Washington, D.C. area. Yeah. 
And uh, so he had, uh, you know, the freshmen on that team, Orlando Wolverich, Tracy Jackson, a guy named Kelly Trapuca. I mean, wow. And then the upper class, I mean, you had uh, you had Duck Williams on that team. You had Bruce Flowers, who played in the NBA. You had uh, Bill Lambeer. I mean, it was, it was quite a, a, a team, and, uh, and they really did uh, play at the highest level. You know, they went to the Final Four in 78. Then in 79, they ran into some machine called Michigan State, some guy named Magic Johnson and Greg Kelser, and um, so what happened? Why couldn't we stop Kelser? Digger said, "Well, we, we don't play above the rim." <laughs> <laughs> well, and he did. I mean, you you think of what he went through. We talked about this a little bit in our last episode, where we talked about the the players who played multi sports, and we mentioned the Townsend brothers and Frank Alaco and all the guys that were on Digger's first team, because Johnny D left the cupboard bare. Right there, there was nothing here resembling a basketball team when he left and there were some freshmen but you have to remember at that time freshmen were not eligible to play right. that didn't happen until after digger's first season so digger comes in he inherits nothing he cobbles together six wins he gets absolutely obliterated in games against ucla and iu because their name didn't change the schedule and he builds that program up very, very quickly. The following year, they got to the finals of the NIT when the NIT was still a right. big deal. I believe at that time the NCAA tournament was still only 32 teams. So you, right. your team's 32 through 64. Who, How many NCAA tournaments have we seen where those teams make a nice run? Right. Notre Dame gets to the finals of the NIT, and then that following year, the 73-74 season, what a tremendous year that was. Notre Dame beats Indiana at Assembly Hall in Bloomington two years after losing by 65 down yeah, there. Close the gap. And then number one UCLA comes in here with the 88-game unbeaten streak. They lead 70-59 to with 312 remaining. Digger calls a timeout, and Notre Dame goes on a 12-0 run to close the game. I can still picture Dwight Clay taking the yeah. shot from the corner baseline. UCLA has three shots to win the game at the end, can't get them to drop, and the Joyce Center, which at that time the capacity was 11,345, probably had about 14,000 people in it that day. Right, and, and since if you, then. And if you go to memories, there are probably about 80,000 who will yeah. tell you that they were at the game. Oh, I was there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was right up in row seven. Yeah. And John Shoemate, you know, when he got that last rebound and threw it uh, up in the rafters, but you think about that team, you know, guys like Adrian Dantley and, you know, Dwight Clay made the shot, and it was not an open shot. He's kind of, you know, working toward the baseline and let it fly a little bit off balance, you know, went in and everything. Like, people are like, on that team with all the great talent, who made the winning shot? Dwight Clay? Yeah, because he was a, a terrific role player and a tough kid and uh, had some great years at Notre Dame. So Digger builds that team, and of course now he gets the program going, as Bob mentioned, 78 Final Four, 79 Magic Johnson. The sport changes in the 80s with the advent of cable television and more teams able to get on the air. And I think that had as much to do with Digger's downfall as anything because all of a sudden that pipeline that he had coming out of Washington, D.C., those guys were staying home to play in the Big East. Were they going to Georgetown? 
They were going to Georgetown. Uh, they were going to Virginia. They were going to Villanova. And and you saw the rise of that conference. And, I mean, I, I truly think that that was – Kind of the beginning of the end for Digger. It was a, a big, a big part of it. Digger was here twenty years. In the last five years, were really tough, and uh, we wound up not getting top recruit. We got some good ones. We, you know, but Ron Rowan was not one of the top guards in the, in the country. Uh, we had the, some big guys that were okay, but they weren't the best big guys. Tim Andre, guys like that. They. Uh, and one of the things about Digger is he went 100% every day, every hour. When he had a big game, you know, those UCLA games, DePaul games, Marquette games, man, the guy was tireless. He put together a game plan, and uh, I remember him doing that for uh, games like uh, Kansas and uh, big games that we played when I was doing the games on radio. And uh, he was just a tireless worker. So with five years to go in his run, not saying he didn't work as hard. It's just hard to go that hard for that many years. And so as things started to slow down, he gave his assistant coaches maybe a little bit more responsibility. Not sure they did a great job with what they were supposed to be doing. Uh, he had some things going on in his personal life which required him to spend more time uh, maybe taking care of family business. Than, uh, and, you know, Digger was a consummate uh uh, hard-working guy, you know, spending seven hours a day looking at video and that kind of thing. And, and he knew later on they didn't have the best talent. So, you remember we played uh, Oregon, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And they were undefeated or they were in the top ten or something. And we held the ball for, like, uh, forever and wound up beating them. And, uh, well, and this is something that should be noted, is I don't think there's any coach in any Notre Dame sport that knocked off more number one teams than Digger Phelps. Right. Whether it was San Francisco in the late 70s, DePaul in the late 70s and the early 80s. Um, I remember there was an Idaho team that was ranked one or two that that's, came in that's here. That's what I was referencing. And we... Digger knocked them off. North Carolina. It, if you wanted a guy, and you mentioned, that guy knew how to scout – that guy knew how to how to find tendencies on players better than any coach I've been around. And if you wanted a guy to win one game, he was your guy. Well, I totally agree. And I think it you know wouldn't be that far fetched for me to see him put together a game plan today. Because, you know, that well, that war room was a an unbelievable setup and I knew a lot of the assistant coaches on there and I was in there a couple of times and the detail that they had on, on each and every player and what they'd like to do. Uh, i got to tell you about the game at Syracuse. We went up there and we played Syracuse in front of 35,000. 1986. And it was, uh, you know, they were they were one of the top teams in the country. And they had a lineup that was just full of NBA players. And uh, they had Ronnie Cycli, who had come over from Greece, I think, and he was an international player. And Digger had scouted him and said, you know, every time that he – Somebody makes a basket and he inbounds it. He does like the international guys. He puts one foot over the line and then just turns and throws it inbound to his own guy. And normally they take, you know, referee will hand you the ball and you square up and you throw a pass. But Ronnie liked to do that. So uh, there was a point early in the game where we uh, we ran a baseline screen to Ken Barlow and he got a layup against Cycli because we saw his tendencies defensively. And then we ran the exact same play the other side, and Tim Kempton got a basket. 
and then cycle took the ball out of bounds and tried to inbound it right away. Jim Dolan was standing there. It went right in Dolan's hands. He went and laid it up, got fouled, made the free throw. We're up 7 nothing. Yeah. And Jim Beheim is losing a little bit of the hair that he had left. And uh, he is just unbelievable. And, and the team, uh, Coleman was on that team. Derek Coleman, Pearl Washington. Pearl Washington. And their leading scorer, I could never seem like I could come up with his name, but they had a guy averaging 17.1 points per game. And Digger's scouting report said he's too lazy. Raphael Addison. Raphael Addison. And he's he's lazy in that when you front him, he won't work hard to get open. So um, they came to – well, I mean, the things that they did, Pearl Washington would reverse the ball. And if you were in a 2-3 zone, he would then penetrate between the two guys. So Digger said if he – if they go baseline and then back out to Pearl, we're going one three one. So he got the ball back, put his head down, ran right into Scotty Hicks, and that's a charge. And uh, Bayham's like, "What are you doing?" He said, "Well, they're in a two three. No, they're in one three one. You know, pay attention." And uh, the next time down the floor after we had scored, they tried to get the ball to Addison. He wasn't open, and somebody took a shot and uh, missed it. We got the rebound, went down, and it was a great start. And then it was a great finish because we. Uh, we had totally messed with what they like to do, and, and we had their tendencies down. And man, to win a game at Syracuse, thirty-five thousand people—that uh, was—it's still—it's got to be in Digger's uh, top five. Wins. I I was there that day as well. I was writing for the Observer, the student newspaper, and I believe the article that I wrote after the game was: the Syracuse students have a have a habit of chanting a profanity after every made free throw by their opponent. Farm fields would be covered after the Irish went 41 of 49 at the stripe. <laughs> that's uh, that's classic. That's uh, something we did to Kentucky one time. Kelly Chapuka, I think himself, was 21 out of 23 because they kept following him. And uh, that was at that neutral site down there, Freedom Hall in Kentucky. Yeah. Neutral site. And uh, they had 18,000 people in there. And I remember after the game, we were kind of sitting there picking up our gear and all that stuff, and the place was pretty well emptied out. And there were uh, whiskey bottles being thrown from the upper deck onto the floor. And those people did not take lightly lightly to losing, uh, nor did they like Kelly Trapuca for making all those free throws. But uh, that was kind of fun to beat Joby Hall down there at, uh, at that neutral site. After Digger, John McLeod came in, a man who had had success in the NBA, took the Phoenix Suns to the 1976 NBA Finals. He came to Notre Dame. He had Hoosier roots. He grew up in New Albany. Uh, stylish, classy man. I just don't know that he ever adapted to the college game. And I think we've seen that over the years at Notre Dame. When you bring a, a professional coach in to Notre Dame, John McLeod struggled. Uh, Charlie Weiss struggled. Uh, Dave Poulin freely admits to me that it was a it was a bad situation for five or six years before he learned how to coach college kids. Joe Kohark. Joe Kohark, and uh, you know John McLeod, as you said, wouldn't meet a finer gentleman or a guy who wanted to win more, but he didn't play zone in pros. It was illegal, so he came here and he tried to match up. I remember one time Ryan Hoover was guarding. Alan Iverson. Alan Iverson, <laughs> and he held him to 37. 
Yeah, well, John Thompson held him to 37 because he took him out. Right. He was raising his hand like, hey, I need a breather, and he took him out and didn't have to put him back in. But it was, you know, he wanted John to have success, and he had so many things uh, recruiting-wise. He told me one time, you know, Matt Gotch came in, uh, same time that Marcus Young Hughes, uh, who couldn't make a free throw, came right. in. And then a guy named Jeff Settles who went on to be a star at Iowa, and they gave the first two scholarships away to the other two guys. And uh, Settles wanted to come to Notre Dame. We didn't have a scholarship for him. He went to Iowa and did great things. And John said, you know, it's just kind of the way it's gone. And uh, so when he left, uh, a lot of mixed feelings. I mean, he just loved the guy. He wanted him to do well. And Notre Dame should have been a better experience for him, and it wasn't. And uh, and so they're looking for an answer, somebody to maybe uh, get the thing turned around in a hurry. And, uh, well, let's go with the former North Carolina great. And uh, and Matt Doherty's one year here was a very good year. It was. Uh, he he got great play out of guys like Matt Carroll, who went on to the NBA, David Graves, uh, Chris Quinn, I believe, was on that right. team. He played in the NBA as well, a longtime assistant now in the NBA. But... Matt Doherty was here a year, and then alma mater called. And I I still don't see anybody at Notre Dame who blames him for taking the Carolina job when no, it opened up. No, That was it. his dream job. Absolutely, and it didn't go well for him down there. But I remember one of the big things about when Matt Doherty took over, he knew that the, the basketball team that he inherited – had not worked real hard, and by that, John McLeod's practices uh, were not overly tough physically, because in the NBA you play 102 games, right? Most teams, and uh, so in the pros you have practice in the afternoon or shoot around, but you don't go overly hard. It's a long, tough road, and so when he got to Notre Dame, they ran many of the same type of drills, and so I think Matt Doherty said, "You know what? These guys just aren't." in great shape and got to work them hard. He worked their tails off. They needed a toughness, and he brought it out of them. He did, and then they, they won. They had some big wins. I think it was Ohio State. They had a, a, I mean, they, they really lit a fire, and it was, it was kind of sad to see him go because we felt like we had a guy that could be around for quite a while. And, uh, and so uh, when he left, we're looking at uh, filling that void, and I think uh, – we did a great job finding Mike Bray. Mike Bray has been here now 23 years. Uh, you mentioned at the top he has more wins than any coach in Notre Dame men's basketball history. And he has had his his ups and downs here. But he is a guy whose, whose personality really fits the players that he gets. His players love him. Um you talk to the guys that have played for him. They are still so very loyal to him. And I think he's he's kind of gone with the ebbs and flows at this place. I mean, last year, nobody expected much of anything out of this team. And I realized the ACC was considered to be a down league last year, even though it produced the national champion. Yeah. Uh, they finished third in the ACC last year. Right. And uh, he's had uh, he's had some remarkable runs. He said, "You mentioned, you know, just a minute ago, you had a, a comment about uh, he does really well with the athletes that we have at Notre Dame, and it's almost like the athletes that we can get at Notre Dame. 
you know, it's it's always been a tough struggle to uh, to recruit in a game that's an basically an urban game. And so many times you'll have a high school coach who says, look, I know you want to take the four core courses so you can get into colleges like Notre Dame, but I want to win the city championship, so I don't want you taking the science class. And, you know, they will sacrifice a kid's future yeah. for their own record and uh, in in those uh, public leagues in Chicago and different places. But uh, the players that we get, and, and I'm really excited about this team because it reminds me of the team with Tim Abramitis and company. They had set five, six guys on the team, all about six, seven, six, eight. You didn't have maybe a center. You didn't have forwards. You just had six guys who could play, and they would pass the ball, and they would shoot the ball extremely well, and they could compete with anybody. If they were having a good shooting day, they were as good as anybody in the country. Well, we could go on and on about Mike Bray, and maybe that'll be another episode, but it's about time to wrap this one up on this edition of Irish Tales. We thank you for joining us. Leave us a review on our podcast wherever you can do that. I I don't know enough about it to know where that is. I'm sure Bob doesn't either. Until next time, for Bob Nagel, Chuck Freebie, thanks for joining us on Irish Tales. Sports Jack presents Irish Tales with Chuck Freebie and Bob Nagel. Stories from the land of the fighting Irish on the Studio DNA Podcast Network.